From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang Podcast for the week of June 13th, 2013. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media, based here in Washington, D.C. And also both in Washington today are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. Catherine, welcome. How are you? Just great. Great to be here again. And Jigger Shaw of Jigger Shaw Consulting, who every week seems to be in a different place. Jigger, how are you? <laughs> Good. Just trying to make sure that I survive this uh, new derecho here in D.C., I know, and we'll talk about the impact of the derecho on grid reliability coming up in the show. Uh, We're also going to talk about the explosive growth in U.S. solar PV installations, including thousands in California that received no state incentives. So is the solar industry finally going to get some respect? Uh, We'll move from distributed energy to centralized and discuss some recent developments for offshore wind in America. We'll ask whether it makes sense for the U.S. to lead in the sector or simply be a second mover. And then... As I mentioned, we'll go into the health and resiliency of America's grid. A new report finds U.S. outages were actually down in 2012, but with the impact of Superstorm Sandy still fresh in people's minds, smart grid advocates are pushing harder than ever for change. So what does that change really mean? So let's start with this new report out this week from the folks at GTM Research and the Solar Energy Industries Association that showed the U.S. installed 723 megawatts of solar PV in the first quarter of this year, and that's the best first quarter ever. And to put that into perspective, just four years ago, the U.S. installed 435 megawatts in the entire year. So incredible growth and looking like we're going to install about a f- about four and a half gigawatts of solar this year. Um, Jigger, I want to get your thoughts on this as, as the solar guy here. Um, but I'll tell you what I find fascinating. Uh, as Shale Khan, our VP of research, points out, in California, during the first three months of this year, there were 3,000 residential systems that were installed without state incentives at all. And of course, you know, we have net metering and there's solar friendly tariffs in California that are very important. But 13.5 megawatts were installed without actual rebates through the California Solar Initiative incentives through that program. And I'm I'm blown away by that, and I think it does represent a pretty big tipping point for solar in California and potentially the rest of the U.S. What do you What do you think about that? Well, I think that you know what this shows is that you know solar is clearly cost competitive. But the other nuance that I think people may have missed is that the solar industry on the downstream side actually needs between nine and twelve months to catch up to cost reductions. And so it was about 9 to 12 months ago that we actually hit $0.60 a watt for solar PV. And so it was around that time that a lot of the downstream solar companies spent extra money to develop all this pipeline that's now being constructed in the first quarter. And so I think that that's that that sort of, you know, like lag is something that sometimes we miss. What do you mean by catch up? Like explain how that what that means on the ground level. Well, there's a ton of projects that a lot of the downstream guys couldn't make pencil. And when solar PV prices went to 60 cents a watt um, last year, people said, oh, those can pencil now. Let me call up those customers again. Let me make sure that they're, you know, whether they're interested at the new lower price, you know, let me figure this stuff out. And, and I think, you know, and, and so that's how I think the volume was created 
But the other piece of it, which is you know the thirteen and a half megawatts that was uh, that for forewent the uh, you know sort of ten cents a watt rebate in California, I think one of the things that you're seeing there is all this soft cost conversation, and uh, it was actually just better and easier for them to just avoid the state of California than to incur extra cost to get that money. Yeah, and I'll tell you what this highlights for me is that uh, for a long time we've really focused on these battles over rebate programs and and other performance-based incentives, and they've been very hot and cold. A rebate comes out, you see a flood of activity of companies trying to secure those rebates, and then you see uh, projects fall off the map. And now we're really focusing on net metering and rate design, and this is where the lines are going to be drawn in many states. And uh, you know, if, if things go smoothly through 2016 with a federal ITC in place, um, you know, this small pool of solar projects in California that got completed without state incentives is going to get a lot bigger. But it's going to get bigger with strong net metering policies and better rate designs in place that properly value solar. And you see in states like Arizona and in Texas uh, and in Colorado, you know, there are battles in place with the utilities over uh, what over their net metering policies and um, over how much solar they're willing to accept. And, and I think that we've gotten to another phase of the conversation that's going to get really interesting here and I think a lot more fierce. Yeah, look, I think that's right. But the one thing that's really interesting is Minnesota passed um, a new legislative program uh, recently. And the part that I think people missed in that as well as Southern Companies Mandate is this new whole value of solar um, uh, calculations that people are making. And what they're finding in Southern Companies territory, also Austin's territory, and now I think you'll see in Minnesota's territory, that in fact net metering has been shortchanging the solar industry. And when you do a value of solar calculation, the s- solar uh, will actually be valued at a much higher price than retail. And I think people will come back and find that net metering was actually a bargain. Yeah, and and if you do solar with a backup storage, battery storage system, it the value goes up even higher, and the net metering again becomes even less uh, helpful. <laughs> what do you guys think about the utility battles over net metering? They claim that uh, customers installing solar are not properly paying for the costs of transmission and distribution, uh, but people in the solar industry complain that. You know, if they invest in solar themselves and they get a guaranteed rate of return, they get to socialize those costs. But if others are doing it, then they don't get any of that benefit. Uh, are utilities correct in saying that this is simply a cost distribution issue? Or do you think it's deeper than that and it's utilities um, fighting for their bottom line and, say, and being fearful of third parties coming in and developing solar? Well, look, I mean, I've been very vocal about this. I think I wrote a piece on this in Green Tech Media maybe a year and a half ago that was pretty well commented on. The utilities make up stuff all the time. And so, you know, they just need to make sure that it ma- they make it up in a way that non-informed um, customers of theirs, you know, will fall for the bait, right? So the real answer here is we invented net metering as a solar industry in the late 90s because the utility still uses COBOL to actually run its billing system. So they have 55-year-old people you know, that have to be on retainer because they actually can't transition their billing system. They don't want to pay the $75 million to transition it to be able to do dual metering. So net metering was invented as a way of actually accommodating the utility's arcane system. 
now that we're moving to AMI and smart grid and all these other things, the utility is almost being forced to upgrade their arcane systems. And that allows for these value of solar studies or, or dual billing or something else. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it wasn't possible for the utility to do all the things that they're suggesting right now. Looking at this growth, we're looking at a four and a half gigawatt market this year, potentially nine gigawatts of solar by 2016. Who knows after that? What could stop this development? I mean, is it is it net metering policies and rate design that are really the key limitations here? Or is it financing? What to you, Jigger, is the, the big stumbling block through 2016 that may sort of change the trajectory that we're on? Nothing. I mean, it's all about money right now. And we have, you know, 500 of the smartest people in the United States working on figuring out MLPs and securitization and real estate investment trusts and Canadian income trusts and all sorts of interesting new financing mechanisms to get lower cost financing. But, you know, at this point, there are so many people in the United States who've caught the bug of solar that they are not going to allow, um, you know, the crazy Republicans in North Carolina to roll back the rules in, you know, in North Carolina around net metering and solar. They're not going to allow, you know, folks in Arizona where even the governor came out and supported renewable energy in the end because she realized it was a huge job creator and that the crazy lunatics in the legislature, you know, were, were taking us the wrong way. So I don't think there's anything left to stop us. You know, we just have to get this securitization stuff done, which will take us about a year and a half or two years, I think, of solid work. But once that happens, we'll have lots of low-cost money, and we'll be able to have a much more streamlined process. Well, we're going to keep talking about the solar figures here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, We'll definitely keep tracking those at GTM Research. I want to turn from distributed to centralized now. Some big developments in the offshore wind sector The Interior Department is uh, going to hold its first ever auction for offshore wind leases in federal waters uh, later this summer. And the resource potential in these waters off the coast of Rhode Island amounts to about 3,300 megawatts of wind resource. So uh, is this a cause for celebration in wind? Um, You know, for me, having watched the, the long debacle over Cape Wind, which has the blessing of the Interior Department, I was less than enthusiastic about this news, as it doesn't really say a lot about what's likely to get developed in these waters. And I know it's a significant milestone, but can anyone convince me that there's something bigger here, that we should be excited about this? Well, I guess I can I can jump in first. I think, um, you know, it just take, it's been taking so long to get this permitting done. So if they can streamline that somewhat and, and get some of these um, underground cables put in, build the grid... The issue is it's not like an onshore project that's 18 months to two years. This is taking a long time. Uh, Gamesa Wind had set up an R&D facility to design their first offshore prototype in Virginia. They they completed the design and then they said, we're not going to do it here. We're going to do it in Spain because there's, you know, the, the policies aren't in place. The Everything is just taking too long. We'll never be able to make a business case for it here right now. Yeah. But- yeah. Look, I think the conspiracy part of this is that, you know, that uh, the U.S. has a very distinctive second mover, you know, policy. They don't want to talk about it. It's not open. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, we did solar and wind at scale 
after the Europeans did. We and I think we're going to do offshore wind after the Europeans pay for the expensive offshore wind. We'll get the next generation cheaper offshore wind, and I think that's a deliberate policy on behalf of our policymakers that they just don't want to talk about. I mean, there's a lot of people who get a lot of great lip service from Interior and others around how the U.S. government's trying to help them. They should just be explicit about it. And they're saying, look, we're a slow and steady wins the race kind of country. I don't think that we would ever say that. I mean, have you listened to the conversation around the global race for developing clean energy technologies? The the political conversation, whether rightly or wrongly, is focused on this race to the top. And it's rallied a lot of people. And I just can't imagine anyone ever saying explicitly, we're a second mover. We're going to wait for someone else to do it. Uh, but what is interesting is that you know the U.S. continues to invest in technology development. $100 million invested by the DOE in fiscal year 2012 in early stage deployment projects for offshore wind, you know, millions for testing and permitting new turbine technologies, developing new foundations, new installation techniques. We did interestingly see the first floating uh, prototype uh, off the coast of Maine installed uh, a couple of weeks ago. So there is some of this early stage technology development, you know, that might that will probably set us up for a solid move after the Europeans have figured it out. But I just can't see the U.S. explicitly saying that this is a second mover policy. I think it's very clear that we're not going to be able to reach our U.S. climate change goals unless we do offshore wind. Right. There are an enormous amount of offshore wind resources, and they are very close to large population centers like New York City, Philadelphia, Wilmington, Delaware, all of the cities that are on the coast on the east and west side, although I think the east coast is better. And so we're going to have to do offshore wind. I just think that you know we have decided, and I think innovation um, is a good place to put money, but Unfortunately, when the U.S. puts money in innovation in places like offshore wind, they're doing it as a deliberate strategy to sort of push off um, the larger dollars, which you know are involved in deployment. So we've been talking about technologies that offer two different pathways for how we manage the grid, and I want to turn to the grid itself. So as we enter the summer months, we're going to see more extreme weather, and uh, in fact, we're talking about this as a strong storm sweeps across the Midwest and comes east to D.C. and and the surrounding area uh, has caused major power outages. Um, And this is the issue of grid modernization. So, Catherine, your former organization, the GridWise Alliance, just put out this plan on how to make the grid more responsive to storms. And a lot of it is a smart grid plan uh, outlining suggestions that we've we've seen before Um, but what's interesting is they don't mention the word smart grid instead we're using words like modernization and resiliency is that a conscious decision that people are making to avoid the term smart grid in this context um i can't speak for them but i'm sure it is i think uh smart grid has a whole lot 
just the term has some baggage based on the way some of it was rolled out. Uh, so I think that the terms that are being used now are more descriptive uh, of what is really being done um, and doesn't make it sound like it's too focused on the meters, that it's really about making the grid more resilient, the grid itself. And the Wood Gridwise Alliance, from my reading of, of their report, was they were really sort of – they were very, very common sense measures. Like, let's like make sure that our emergency response planning is, is you know, is in place, and that the information communication technologies are reliable and secure. Um, things like that. The one one thing I thought was interesting was that they suggested that regulators should include societal costs and grid modernization business cases, which is interesting because um, this is going back to sort of what are the what are the costs to society of a number of things that we've tried to include environmental costs uh, when people have when they've done their integrated resource planning. I think there is a big nut we have yet to crack, which is we need to build in the the actual cost of reliability. We need to figure out how much it costs and build that in as an actual value. Um, and I think if you can get your head around that and build that in as a real true cost, then you'll be able to get to build it into the rate pace. In the, in the end, you know, all of these things that we have to do to harden our grid, uh, consumers are going to still have to pay for those because those are assets that, that are going to need rate recovery. So the consumers are still going to end up paying for all of these things. But Catherine, you know, what I'd love your advice on here is that I read that report and I found it striking that it seemed like there was an enormous disconnect in the report itself, which they failed to mention or failed to even discuss, which is that New York and New Jersey don't believe that they're more resilient by having more long line transmission. They believe they're more resilient by having more local generation, microgrids, distributed generation, right? And so, like, aren't they actually, like, trying to make this document a one-size-fits-all when they're actually at opposite odds, right? I mean, you can either pay for transmission or you can pay for grid resiliency. You can't really do both. I think this report was totally geared to what the utilities can do. And so a lot of the way I think about resilience and distributed power, it's actually taking it a little bit out of the typical utility construct. (laughs) And I think they just were talking about, all right, what can the utilities that are, you know, the utilities that are in place now, what are we going to be able to do? And so that kind of takes you out of a super creative, we're not going to be the utility space because they are the utilities. Um, What I found very interesting also was that there was this um, improving communications to speed restoration of power and using you know Facebook and people posting things and using all this social media um, when I was working for a utility back in the 80s we didn't have computers we had cards and you would write somebody would call in on a phone and you know the phone had like a little wire attached to it you'd pick up the phone hello and you would write down on the card where the outage was and you would hand it to the truck the interesting thing was that was in the day uh, when all the trucks knew where the people lived they knew who they knew who their neighbors were. They were so much more connected to their consumers because they, there was no outsourcing. It was all, you know, your neighbors worked for the power company. They were part of like the community helpers. They were the, they, they were part of the ecosystem. And now, you know, it's like they're trying to recreate that through social media. It's it's sort of interesting that it's come full circle. I actually liked both of those. Those were the two things that jumped out at me, the interaction through social networking and 
and the uh, societal cost of, of grid modernization. I liked both of those elements. Now, I'm probably going to get a lot of emails from listeners, or maybe you two, calling me an idiot for saying this, but uh, do we hold the grid to a standard that's unachievable? I mean, you know, of course, outages cause s- serious economic and social harm, particularly when people are stranded after a massive storm like Sandy. Um, but we're talking about, you know, very extreme weather events here. And while utilities need to be better prepared for it, and there are things that they can do immediately to help improve reliability, they're going to get hit. And I feel like people have this expectation that when that the lights should go back on instantaneously all the time, without any regard to constraints about manpower or complexity of the problem. And I just feel like the complaints after very large storms and outages show that people hold utilities to uh, an expectation or a standard that is unachievable. Yeah, Stephen, here's here's the thing. I think there are two different things. One is just sort of the regular doing business. Are they reliable? Our grid is actually super reliable compared to most other grids. I mean, it's a, it's a very well-run system. The issue is when you have these really disruptive things like hurricanes, it just, it, it, there, there's, there's nothing that's really going to be able to weather it unless you think about your whole energy system differently. And I think part of the issue is that we've thought so much for so long about central power plants with long transmission lines uh, because we needed to electrify our country. And that was the model we had to use. And I think that model is shifting and we have to start thinking about it differently. Um, And, you know, uh, President Obama came out with uh, with a plan to to build more transmission and to build uh, corridors, I, I'm sure that you saw yeah. that. Yeah, let's talk about that because he sent a memo to department heads in his cabinet, setting a deadline for for transmission plans for this summer along those established corridors that were set by the Bush administration. And yeah. he said he would use well, his wait. authority to go ahead. Well, yeah, wait a second. Let's 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 cover the last topic first, and then I'd be happy to transition to this. I mean, I know a lot about the electricity grid. And the reason why I hold my utility accountable is because they lie to me all the time. They say to me, Jigger, please let me raise rates on everybody in the grid by a billion dollars to make the grid more reliable. If they just said, look, we're not going to maintain a reliable grid, but we keep your costs low, then it'd be fine. But if they actually lie to me and say, we need to put all these smart meters in to get enough data to be able to keep the grids more reliable, or we need to actually upgrade all these big transmission lines, you know, secretly, it's because they want a 14% guaranteed return by the FERC. But in, but in fact, like, you know, they tell me, well, you know, we need to make the grid more reliable. So then, like, you know, when my grid goes down, of course, I'm going to hold them responsible because they screwed me out of a 20% rate increase to tell me that the grid's going to be more reliable and they didn't deliver. Let me guess you're talking about Pepco. Well, Pepco is <laughs> one of them, but also the Sunrise Power Link, right? I mean, San Diego Gas and Electric said we need to build a $1.3 billion power line out to the Palo Verde nuclear plant out of uh, in Arizona um, because we need to be able to accommodate all this new renewable energy and um, we need to maintain grid reliability because our load is going up. And then we did a study showing that it would be one-tenth the cost to do advanced energy efficiency and, and distributed generation to meet the same levels of reliability. And they said, oh, actually, what we really wanted to build that for is to get our dirty natural gas plants from Baja, California, into our transmission grid. I mean, I just look, if they're going to lie to me, I'm going to hold them accountable. 
Yeah, I, I actually, okay, so I sort of partly agree with you, although I have this visceral reaction because I worked for utility and I was on the other end of the phone and I did drive those lines and, and try to get people back into service. So I, I have some experience with that too. But I would, I would just say, you know, they, their business model is we have to have assets that then we can mortgage and, you know, get, get recovery for. But let me, let me give you an example of a project. Presidio, Texas is at the end of a really long radial line. They have terrible reliability issues. And they said, okay, we have a choice. We can build transmission. It's going to cost a lot of money. The ratepayers are going to have to pay for it. Or here's something else. We can put in an energy storage battery and defer the transmission, and it'll be cheaper. And and they did that, and they were able to get rate recovery. Of course, they had to get rate recovery for the battery. Um, and they resolved it in a different way. And I think part of this is getting people to think about things differently. So we're not just always – and the reason I was jumping into the president's thing is that I think we need to not just think about transmission. We have to think about the whole system and figure out well, what's going to work best where. And it may not be huge transmission corridors. It, you may have to do that to some level, but we need to think about things a little differently. And I, and, and I think – being able to be creative and yet allow them to get rate recovery, that may be one way to do it. So yeah, is, look, I but look, I agree with you. But ultimately the transition from that conversation to this one is that they are going to give people guaranteed returns of fourteen percent rates of return. Now, if you do a thirty year mortgage on your house at a fourteen percent interest rate, you're paying like five to six times the original capital back over that thirty years. That's a lot of money. So for every billion dollars, you're actually recovering $5 billion or more from the ratepayers. It's so much cheaper to do advanced energy efficiency, storage strategically on the grid, distributed generation than to build these transmission lines. And that brings us to Obama's plan for building out these transmission corridors that were initially established under the Bush administration on public lands in the West. Uh, he Obama used the opportunity to to say that he would use his authority to designate corridors in East Coast states as well. So, you know, the Obama administration has talked a lot about distributed energy. The Department of Energy certainly seems bullish on distributed renewables. Uh, But this goes back to our conversation last week, and that is the Obama administration seems to want it both ways, Uh, this all all of the above approach. They want large-scale centralized transmission and they also uh, seem somewhat bullish on distributed renewables. So is there a conflict here? Is there a well, conflict I, between what the president is asking for in this memo and some of the other needs for distributed generation like we've been talking about? Well, Stephen, in Section 1, the principal section of the memo, number 2 says, focus on facilitating renewable energy resources and improving grid resiliency by ensuring that energy corridors address not only the new upgraded and new electric transmission and distribution facilities to improve reliability, relieve congestion, and enhance the capability of the grid to deliver electricity. To me, that says on the distribution side, we got to look at things other than transmission. And if you look at FERC's Order 1000, so, you know, FERC is going to have authority over the bulk power system in a lot of those places. Order 1000 says, look at alternatives to transmission. What else can you do so that you don't have to just, you know, build transmission everywhere? Yeah. And this is a complicated puzzle. So where does the president's executive authority actually fit in here? It's it's loosey goosey, right? I mean, the, the the states basically, you know, in 2007, President Bush 
thought that he provided eminent domain and, you know, large powers to the FERC to actually push these things through. But, you know, in point of fact, there's still a lot of coordination work that has to be done. And a lot of the states are subject to landowners' rights in those areas. I mean, you know, Tri-State's transmission line was killed by, you know, Lewis Bacon and some of these other wealthy folks in Colorado who didn't want a transmission line going through their property. So, you know, I think that the, the president hasn't, in my opinion, with this executive order, uh, taken more power to the federal government. Yeah, and nobody's kind of – there isn't one authority that can say, all right, let's just look at the country, look what we have, look where the resources are, where we need to get them, what do we have now? I mean, there's so, it's such a patchwork of different authorities that it's impossible to do that and to really make sense of it. Sounds like, sounds like the solar industry has got a bright future ahead of it. <laughs> <laughs> No, and this is why I set the conversation up in talking about distributed solar PV and large-scale wind and then and then cap it with this discussion about transmission because I think that we are facing some very serious decisions here and I think that there are, that the evolution in distributed renewables particularly solar PV is happening fast enough that the decisions that the Obama administration and regulators are making today maybe the consequences may be drastically different in just a few years. So I think that this is a really relevant conversation to be having right now. Okay, so let's move into our final segment. It's time for our panel to tell us something that we don't know. Uh, Jigger, what's on your plate? Anything interesting happening that you think we should know about? So last week, um, the the three major landowner military branches, so the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army, were called into the White House and uh, told that they needed to create plans on how to get 1,000 megawatts each for each branch um, to install in their facilities by 2020. And all three of the branches basically said said to the White House that they have no idea how to do it. So for all of the planning that we've done, the 7,000 megawatt target, all of the, uh, you know, sort of analysis that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory has done, the Army, you know, Navy and Air Force are claiming that they have no idea how to actually install 1,000 megawatts each or 3,000 megawatts total by 2020. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to me how this administration just keeps shooting themselves in the foot. Catherine, what about you? Um, I, of course, I'm so focused on Congress. There are a couple of things that I thought people might know about, like to know about. One is the Senate passed the Farm Bill with a mandatory energy title, and it includes funds of about a billion dollars over five years for energy provisions. Includes loan guarantees for biorefineries, R and D, biomass crop assistance, and um, includes bio-based chemicals that would be you you know get us a little bit more off of petroleum. Um, so that's interesting. The House is hung up because um, of a number of issues, including food stamps. So I'm not sure if it's going to get over the finish line. It would be super nice if they could and agree on some of these issues. But there is an energy title in the Senate version. Um, the other bill that I'm watching out for is immigration reform. And the reason is that for um, innovators in this country and entrepreneurs, H-1B visas are a huge issue. And the current cap is $65,000. And the bill, the Senate bill, raises it to a minimum of a, of 115000 with a ceiling of 180000 And I think that's going to allow um, allow us to have a, a, some more folks come in um, you know, as entrepreneurs and, and develop clean technologies here in the U.S., 
Mine is a new International Energy Agency report looking at how to limit global temperature increases to two degrees Celsius. And the report looked at different solutions, some simple solutions uh, on how to limit temperature rise outside of a global climate agreement, outside of complicated things like geoengineering, uh, massive deployment of renewables. And they found that 50% of the solution was through energy efficiency. Uh, and most of the broad-based policy solutions were for simple things like standards for industrial motors in India and in China, uh, better building standards in again in China and India, and improved appliance and equipment standards in the U.S., Europe, and in Asia. And they found that three or four of those policies made up the vast majority of these efficiency improvements. And while I understand that it's very complicated on the ground to some to implement some of these, they're also very simple conceptually, and they show that we can make a huge impact with some pretty simple policies. So I thought that was really interesting and I think is a good news story for us to consider as we look at the looming uh, climate threat. You can read all the stories we covered on the podcast at our site, greentechmedia.com. We'll provide a few links to stories on our podcast page for your reference. If you like the show, please pass a link to your friends and colleagues. Uh, write about it, link to it, tweet it, Facebook it, do what you can to spread the word. You can also follow us on SoundCloud, and we'll soon have an RSS feed that you can follow. Thanks very much for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, good to speak to you. Thanks, you too. And Jigger Shaw, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks. Have a great weekend. This podcast is produced by Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang.